Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on September 9th, 2011. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... Everything that takes place in this flower, in my brain, and in your heart, and so on, depends on enzymes, on the right kind of catalyst. That's the legendary Christian de Duve, who will turn 94 in October. He won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1974 for the discovery of lysosomes and peroxisomes, organelles within the cell. He's perhaps best known for his ideas about the origin of life on Earth, about which he's published widely and for the lay reader. We spoke on June 30th at the Lindau Nobel Laureates meeting in Lindau, Germany, in a restaurant adjacent to the conference hall, which, as you will hear, goes from empty to quite busy while Deduve and I talk. I'm very interested in how, in your own, the development of your own thinking, how your early work on recognizing and characterizing the cellular organelles of the lysosome and the peroxisome led to your later interest in origin of life issues? Well, it's a long story. My life is a long story. and it, it, What really started it was, that will interest you, something at Rockefeller, but you know, I spent part of my time at Rockefeller and part of my time in Belgium. Rockefeller University, which used to be the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. And uh, I was invited to give what is now called the Alfred Mursky Lectures. A distant cousin, perhaps. A distant cousin. And Alfred Mursky was, uh, was a professor at Rockefeller. He was an expert in the cell nucleus. And he created at Rockefeller, something which at that time was called the Christmas Lectures. And the Christmas Lectures had been created first at, uh, in London in the 18th century by Faraday. And those were lectures that members of the Royal Society would give for the general public. And so he resurrected the Christmas Lectures. They were changed to the Alfred Mursky Lectures. And it's a wonderful set of lectures. They were given at Rockefeller at Christmas time by one member of the Rockefeller faculty for an audience that was made of 550, which is the seating capacity of our auditorium, 550 young students recruited in all or selected in all the schools and high schools of the New York area. So you had the best audience you could dream of, just truly motivated youngsters. And uh, so Alfred asked me in 1976 whether I would give those lectures, a set of four lectures. So I did, and I thought I would, uh, I would take my young, my young listeners for a visit of the cell, and I called the lectures a guided tour of the living cell. They were made able to visit the cell. And I call them cytonauts. 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 And they do a special, a special gear. And using that gear, they were able to enter the cell by endocytosis, follow me into the lysosomes. There they had to 
defend themselves against very nasty enzymes and so on. And the, we went all through all the different parts of the cells as a, on a visit. And I was the guide. And before giving those lectures, I had to do a lot of studying because I knew nothing about several parts of the cell. I knew the lysosomes and the peroxisomes because I had discovered them. I knew the mitochondria because I was interested in them. I knew the, the membrane system because my friend George Palladi had worked on that. But some areas I didn't know about at all, so I had to do some studying. To, so that's the beginning of my learning experience in life after my early studies. And the youngsters were very pleased with everything, and so it uh, worked out all right. And, uh, and then the, 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 the lectures were recorded. And uh, William Bayliss, who was the director of Rockefeller University Press, asked me whether I would agree to have them published. And I said, no way. I said, I have other things to do than writing books. I have a lab to run and I'm creating a new institute in Belgium. So I'm not, uh, I'm not going to. I said, okay, fine with you. And so a few years later, a young man came from Argentina and he was interested in, he was a biologist, interested in uh, science, journalism. So he heard about the tapes and he said, do you mind if I edit the tapes? And foolishly, I said, no, I don't mind. And of course, I said, you have to, to show them to me before you publish anything. So I got his first chapters, and they were terrible. So I started rewriting the first chapters, and uh, one thing leading to another, I ended up writing two books. So it became a, a major work learning first and then to, to, to work it all out so that I could explain it. And the Rockefeller people, of course, were interested in uh, publishing it, but they w couldn't do it on their own. It was too expensive. And so they got in touch with Scientific Americans. Neil Patterson was the, was the chairman of that, the president, created something called Scientific American Library. And the first book in the Scientific American Library was Piles of Ten. I think it's probably still in print. The, the Morrisons had written that. Mm -hmm. And the second and third, because there were two volumes, were a guided tour of the living cells. And so my first book was published by Scientific American Library. And my major effort was really to, to uh, learn all that I had to learn to write that book. And so when that book ended up, I said, well, now what I want to do, I would like to summarize for my fellow scientists what is needed to make a living cell. What I was concerned with was life. What are the, the major features that are common to all living organisms that serve to define life? So I looked at the whole, at the whole problem as a chemist, as a biochemist and as a molecular biologist. So I wrote a new book, which was called Blueprint for a Cell. When I finished that book, I came to the conclusion I need the final chapter on the origin of life to complete it. It's, it's a subject I'd become interested in, so it took another two years to do all the studying uh, and the thinking about the origin of life, and so 
half of the book, the second half of the book became devoted to the origin of life. And I even proposed some new theories and which uh, have been accepted. So I'm now a member of the origin of life crowd. And you, you had to propose new theories because there was no origin of life research. Well, there was, yes, there was Stanley Miller had started right, something right. really quite... But that was very rudimentary. It was the discovery no, that, well, that amino acids it, would it, be available. It started a lot of work, uh, but, but they were chemists, organic chemists, and I was a biochemist, and so I brought in a new vista, the vista of the biochemist on the origin of life. Anyway, I came up with a theory. It's just my nature, I cannot look at the question and try to find the answer, even if I don't know it. So, anyway, you are, it's a long story, as I told you, but then from the origin of life, the next step, of course, was the history of life. And the history of life came, became a big book, and that, again, I went into the whole evolution, which I had not studied before, from the first cells to human beings. So I had to enter the field of uh, advent of uh, humankind, uh, some philosophy, what the meaning of it all, and so on. And that became book number three, which was called uh, Vital Dust. And then Vital Dust led to a further uh, thinking, because in Vital Dust I had been a little cautious about my philosophical or religious beliefs because I was associated with a Catholic university in Belgium. I didn't want to hurt their feelings since I didn't share their, their beliefs. But then I said, decided, well, I have to, I, I don't want to die before without saying exactly what I have on my mind. So I wrote another book, which in English is called Life Evolving. So in French, the title is much better. It's called Listening to Life. À l'écoute du vivant. And in that book, for the first time, I say what I believe about religion, about uh, the meaning of it all, and so on. So I really... But so this is now moves from from uh, humankind down to the human brain to actual to philosophy and religion and so on. And so I think I wrote two more books after that. Then when I went over those books that I had written for the general public, it occurred to me that in those books I was making, in fact, a few original proposals from the scientific point of view. But they were sort of hidden because they were hidden in a book for the general public. So I just said, now, I think... My fellow scientists are not going to read Life Evolving or Vital Dust, so I have to write a book that they will read. And so I call it Singularities. And that's a very nice little book in which I go into, again, it's a, it's a sort of a sequel to building, to Blueprint for a Cell, and, and all the things that are really important. And our singularities, you know, a single origin of life, a single origin of eukaryotes, etc., etc. All the singularities in the history of life. And that's a very nice little book, and it, uh, I think it, it, it didn't sell at all, but it doesn't matter. But anyway. Let me ask you, you were named to most people that I know who are not professional scientists, is most associated with the term RNA world. 
yes. mRNA world. Yes. That the early biological world was an RNA-based world. Well, that's conclusion of uh, my fellow laureate, Wally Gilbert, mm-hmm. uh, who got a prize for sequencing DNA. And uh, he invented the world, RNA world. And uh, that kind of uh, theory has become extremely popular among all the, the experts in the field. Uh, Leslie Orgel was one, uh, Stanley Miller to some extent, but just and the others. And all the people are really very much involved in this field have bought this idea of an RNA world. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Because the RNA world was described by Gilbert as a stage in the origin of life in which there was no DNA and no proteins, and RNA did it all. Mm -hmm. RNA was the bearer of genetic information, doing what DNA does today, but in addition, it acted as catalysts for the early reactions. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, a major discovery had been made by Tom Check and Sidney Altman, and they discovered catalytic RNA ribozymes, that is RNA molecules that were catalysts. And so Wally Gilbert came up with this RNA world idea in which RNA did it all. And my answer to that was a a little article in Nature titled, Did God Make RNA? So, did he? (laughs) Well, of course not. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but as a scientist, I have to take as a working hypothesis that this came about naturally and not supernaturally. So whatever happened, I don't know, but I have to base my research and my thinking on the hypothesis that this was a natural process which took place. And so um, the question that I'm asking is, how did the first RNA molecule? I agree, you see, I agree that RNA came before DNA. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence supporting that RNA came before DNA. I agree that RNA came before proteins Mm -hmm. because the whole protein-making machinery is RNA. Ribosomes contain RNA, uh, messenger RNA provides the information, transfer RNAs brings the amino acid. So the the protein-making machinery is an RNA machinery completely. So that RNA machine must have come before the proteins. But what came before the RNA is what involves me, you see. Mm-hmm. And the RNA world people don't answer that question. They, they start with the hypothesis, RNA was there. Mm-hmm. And so what I've become mostly involved in this field has been to try. I haven't had time to do experiments, unfortunately. I'm too old for that. I don't have a lab. But I have I know experiments that I want to make. But anyway, so the question today is, how did RNA arise? And so the question that I asked in Nature, did God make RNA, is still is still valid today because nobody knows. Do you have a hunch? Well, it's not a hunch. I have a I have a reasons to believe, which goes against the, the creed or the belief of most of the chemists who are involved in this kind of work. My belief is that the early chemistry, first of all, my belief is, A, it was chemistry. Mm-hmm. Because 
the, the problem is a chemical problem. How do you get a molecule like RNA together? Once you have it, it can reproduce itself. But how do you get it together? So answer number one is it's chemistry. Then answer number two is this chemistry is biochemistry. Because, you see, that is what all Stanley Miller and Leslie Orgel and all the people who work in this field do not accept. They believe that this is a special kind of chemistry they call abiotic chemistry, but it has nothing to do with biochemistry that uh, created the first RNA molecule. And then with the first RNA molecules, a new chemistry was born, mm -hmm. which was biochemistry. And my reason to believe that uh, something like biochemistry had to arise originally is uh, it's a, it's a somewhat complicated argument. But for the new chemistry to arise, the new the biochemistry is based on enzymes, mm -hmm. because all the reactions of biochemistry are reactions that would not take place on their own. Everything that takes place in this flower, in my brain, and in your heart, and so on, depends on enzymes, on the right kind of catalysts. And so biochemistry can arise only with the required catalysts. Those catalysts are proteins, so you're getting the egg, chicken and egg the chicken and egg problem. But to me, the, this new kind of chemistry enzymes could not arise if the circumstances, I'm take, taking a Darwinian view of that, mm -hmm. if the circumstances had not made it favorable for these molecules to reproduce. So I had not made them useful. Mm -hmm. And so they had to fit in the early chemistry. So the early chemistry served as a screen for the, the selection of the agents of the later chemistry. And so there's congruence between the two chemistries. And the screen has disappeared over the course of evolutionary the, time. The screen has disappeared or it's, it's left in terms of its descendants, which are the, the present reactions of biochemistry mm -hmm. and the present enzymes. Mm -hmm. And so I... The reactions, but not the entities necessarily. Right. So my conclusion was that the, the biochemistry had to be prefigured already in the early chemistry. And so I'm looking for an early chemistry that could do something like biochemistry and to, to have something like biochemistry, you need the right kind of catalyst. Mm -hmm. You can't do it without catalysts. And so what I need is catalysts. Are you thinking of abiotic catalysts, though? I'm thinking of catalysts that could have occurred under the primitive conditions and that could mimic what enzymes do. Okay. And I'm thinking of peptides. Mm -hmm. There is associations of amino acids. The amino acids were there. Stanley Miller showed it. They are on meteorites, so the amino acids are, are available. And how they got together is not so difficult. It's not a big thermodynamic problem. Mm -hmm. The Japanese are getting making peptides in hot springs and so on. And so I think that what we are looking for, that's what I would do if I had a lab. Mm -hmm. I would look for catalytic peptides. Catalytic peptides. You know, it's very interesting. There was a, a paper just published, uh, an, a meteorite uh, that had broken into fragments. Yes. It was examined fragment by fragment. 
different chemistries in the different fragments. I see. So that means that chemistry, active chemistry, was occurring within the meteorite. And that appeared where? This paper appeared? Uh, I, I can find it for you. I would love to see um, that because that's really fantastic. I, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I, I really, more than anything, I just wanted to meet you and have the opportunity to talk to you. Well, uh, thank you. I hope at least something comes out of it. If you're interested, the paper I shared with Deduve was published in the journal Science on June 10th by Christopher Hurd et al. It's titled, Origin and Evolution of Prebiotic Organic Matter as Inferred from the Tagish Lake Meteorite. For a quick summary, listen to John Matson's 60-second space podcast of June 13th titled, Fragments of Single Meteorites Show Different Chemistry. You can find it in the podcast section of our website, at www.scientificamerican.com slash podcast. While you're at the website, check out the web content related to our September single topic issue on cities. Chances are you're in a city right now. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet each time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.